We are in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are in chapter 3. We are looking at the church of Sardis, which Jesus addresses as the dead church. The dead church. That's a scary description. Uh, all of us would want to be uh, in the category where we are described as being full of life, right? That's, that's the church. The church is really full of the life of God. In fact, uh, the idea of enthusiasm has the idea, the, the Greek combination of entheos, which means to be full of God. When you're enthusiastic, it really has the idea of being full of God, full of life. And when you're around someone who's full of life, it's a beautiful thing. And when you're around somebody who's down in the dumps, as it were, and they're just not feeling great, and they're struggling, and they, they're even maybe depressed, um, it can be hard. And we've all probably been in both places where we've felt like we're flying high on life and everything's going well, and maybe we're not doing so great. Jesus addresses the church at Sardis with these words. I'm going to read the first couple of verses to get a flavor, and then we'll pray. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up, Revelation 3.2, and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before your holy word tonight, we're just grateful for the time of worship, the time that we can fellowship with each other, and now to hear from your word. Each of these letters comes with an exhortation from the Spirit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we are one of your churches, God, uh, in this grand world that you have made. And we're here tonight to hear from your Spirit, to have our hearts open to your Word, and to hear what you have to say to us. So give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to us, Lord, your church, and may it be for our benefit that we be more uh, in love with you, more conformed into your image, and uh, more glorifying to you, Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Some of you have heard this story before, but it's worth retelling. There's a true story of a young minister in Oklahoma who went to this little, though long-standing church, and he had hopes of really reviving the ministry. He wasn't doing so great. He had stars in his eyes, great hopes for the future. He thought he could turn it around. He gave it his, his best effort, his best shot, week after week, but to no avail. The church just seemed to be as dead as a doornail. Finally, he had one last idea, and he se it seemed to work. He announced in the local newspaper on Saturday that the church had died, and on Sunday afternoon there would be a funeral, funeral service for the church itself. All who wished could attend. For the first time in years, and his years there, the place was packed. In fact, people were standing outside on their tiptoes looking through the window just to see this most unusual of all church services. Well, to their shock, because most of them got there 20 or 30 minutes early to get a seat, there was a casket down front. It was smothered with flowers. He told people as soon as the eulogy was finished, they could pass by and view the remains of the dearly beloved that they were putting to rest that day. Well, the people could hardly wait until he finished the eulogy and 
He slowly opened the casket. He pushed the flowers aside and the people walked by. They filed by one by one to look in to the dearly beloved. But something happened that made them leave rather sheepishly, feeling guilty as they walked out the door. Because inside the casket, the young pastor had placed a large mirror. As they walked by, they saw the church that had died, one by one, as they looked at their own reflection in the mirror. I say that's pretty clever, and that's kind of what we're after tonight as we look at the dead church. I'm sure that you have all experienced places where you've gone into a church and uh, it seems to be rather lively and stuff seems to be going on and people smile at you and shake your hand and hug you. Some of you may have not wanted the hug, but they hugged you anyway. Some of you may have received a couple of holy kisses. You may not have appreciated that, but at least you had a sense that there was life, that there was excitement, that the life of God was there. But then there's other experiences that we've had with maybe places and maybe even professing Christians where it didn't seem to be that way at all. There seemed to be something wrong, something missing. Well, that would be the church at Sardis. It is called the dead church. As we've gone through these churches, I've tried to give you an idea of some geographic locations. So if you look up at the screen for a second, here we have the seven churches of Asia Minor. And if you look on the coast and then you go to the right from Smyrna, you will see the church of Sardis. Each of these churches are roughly 40 to 60 miles apart. So if you take a look at the location of Sardis, it's just east of Smyrna and about 50 miles east of uh, Smyrna and about the same distance from Ephesus. So that gives you an idea of the ancient uh, area of Sardis. Now, you can visit the ruins of Sardis today and one of the uh, extremely interesting things about the city is that it was built on what's called a natural citadel or uh, an acropolis that raised about 1,500 feet be, be, uh, above the uh, ground level there where you can see some of the ruins. So the actual acropolis is in the distance there, and you can get a little closer look at it. What's happened over the years is that the, there's been some erosion in the area, and so you can see some of the, the remains, and some of the remains actually date back, I believe, either to the Byzantine period or to the actual time where the Church of Sardis existed. And so this, this, uh, these are some of the remains there. And being in this, in this area where they had this acropolis or this, this incredible uh, kind of built-in fortress made the city feel like it was really impregnable and could not be conquered. Sardis is situated on the east bank of the Pactolus River, as I mentioned, about 50 miles east of Smyrna and Ephesus. It's situated where two rivers meet, the Hermas and the Pactolus Rivers, and it occupied a rocky northern spur of what's called Mount Tamolus. And at the valley, there's a, the, at the foot of the mountain, you can see some of those ruins there. In ancient Sardis, it was a well-fortified, easily, fortified, easily defended city, uh, as I mentioned, these perpendicular walls that rose uh, from the surface, the natural citadel, and it was the, became the capital of the ancient Lydian Empire, then passed successively to the Persians, to the Greeks, and then to the Romans during the 
respective dominance periods of each of those uh, empires. So if you've ever, you know, uh, gotten into some history as you read your Bible, you wish that you would have listened a little bit more in history class, right? Because you learn stuff about the Egyptian empire from the Bible and the Assyrian empire and the Babylonian empire. And then you get down into the Medo-Persian empire, the Grecian empire, the Roman empire. And that's really where much of the Bible centers itself is in these successive empires where Israel has to deal with Egypt in the Exodus and then Israel has to deal with Assyria in some of the Old Testament books and Babylon in the book of Daniel, for example, and the Medo-Persian Empire in the book of Esther. And down through the ages, you have Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. You have the intertestamental period and then to the Roman Empire where they are reigning during the time of Jesus Christ. And Sardis became a part of the Roman Empire during their particular reign, and it had a very important place. Uh, But back in the day, during the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, um, this kingdom of Lydia had a famous king named Croesus, or or Croesus. He was supposed to be one of the wealthiest people in in the world. In fact, a saying went about during those days that if someone was wealthy, they were as rich as Croesus or Croesus. It was also the home of Aesop. Archaeologists have found hundreds of crucibles in this area used for refining gold in the ruins of Sardis. Jewelry found in local cemeteries show great prosperity in this part of the world. And I mentioned that uh, you can see some ruins today. This happens to be ruins of the ancient temple of Artemis. There was a a temple uh, dedicated to a Greek goddess uh, called Cabela, or at least the Greek goddess was Artemis, but Cabela was the one that came before. And these are the ruins of the temple of Artemis. And so there's some incredibly high pillars here. I think there's about 56 ionic pillars here. And interestingly enough, the, the building that you can see closest to you in the photo is actually a little church. And somewhere along the way, even at the time when the remains of the temple of Artemis were there, and Artemis was that Greek goddess of fertility and that kind of thing, and there were a lot of terrible pagan festivals and rites that happened around her worship, there was a little church built in this area. And in fact, when they looked at the remains of the city of Sardis, and archaeologists have done quite a bit of work here, they found a lot of different things including an area where there were a bunch of shops found. And they they found like the doors of these shops and they found inscriptions here. And they have found both Jewish symbols like menorah, for example, and they have found Christian symbols like a cross and even a fish. And so there was a, a great population of Jewish people in this area and a struggling church was here as well. There's a little closer look at the church structure Uh, There were bathhouses here. There was uh, an imperial cult. And when I say that, I'm talking about the worship of the emperor. And in the uh, bathhouses and what's called the gymnasium, there was a lot of pagan stuff that went on there, including rooms for education where they would teach their worldview to up-and-coming children, just like we have classes for ages from our young ones all the way up to our high schoolers. They would teach their worldview under the watchful eye of the statue of the emperor of Rome. And so what you were basically getting was Rome's worldview, Rome uh, ruling with an iron fist and so forth. They would have, uh, the Greeks would be here and they would have 
They would focus on exercise. The Greeks were really big into exercise. In fact, in their gymnasiums, they exercised in the nude. They did this because they felt like the human body was something that they really wanted to celebrate. And so they felt like the human body in action, doing sports and everything, was one of the most you know, beautiful things and so forth. And so this is some of the stuff that went on here. This is a picture of... Uh, and the ancient remains of the imperial cult and a temple that was built to one of the Caesars. And they found something else interesting in this area of the world. They found one of the largest ancient synagogues that's ever been discovered. In fact, this synagogue, which is a worship place for the Jews, could seat a thousand people. And so it's one of the, the biggest ones that they found anywhere. And what they found within the walls of this synagogue is some Roman figurines, like an eagle, for example, and even and some, some of the, uh, the statues have lost, like the, the faces have been rubbed off and so forth. But these are images of lions. And so within the uh, ancient synagogue and within the church, they were built right in the midst of all this paganism. And so some questions come up about the nature of the religious folk in Sardis. Were they people who were trying to make a difference right smack dab in the middle of the pagan culture? Or had they somehow settled to be part of the pagan culture? When you look at remains, you can only come to some educated speculation, right, about what may be going on here. You can study archaeology. You can look at remains. You can look at Christian symbols or buildings and sites and come to some conclusions. But when you take the remains of the city with the biblical text, now you're starting to get somewhere. And what we can see with the remains and the biblical text is that the church at Sardis, look at verse 2, had a name that they were alive, but they are pronounced dead by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the conclusion that I would come to as someone who studies the Bible and looks at archaeology and wrestles with some of these things in terms of what churches were doing and what they look like is that the Jewish community and the Christian community in this area probably was engaged in a lot of compromise. Now, why would they compromise their values? Why would they, in the midst of a pagan city, why would they give in to the temptations and so forth. Well, here's one of the reasons. One of the reasons was because if you did not worship the emperor on the days that he was worshipped, you could be heavily persecuted and even pay with your life. But Christians were able to find some measure of safety within the walls of the synagogue. Here's how they could do it. The Jews had a special exemption from the Romans And the Romans had said, if you're a Jew and you're part of the synagogue and we do the annual uh, emperor worship and we we want you to uh, give offerings to the emperor and so forth, you can be exempt if you're Jewish. But the Jewish religious leadership in these towns said, we have no part with the Christians. They are not a sect of Judaism. We we decry what they do. We don't believe in their Messiah. We do not believe in Jesus. Jesus. So if you were a Christian in Sardis, you might act like you were a Jew and not name the name of Jesus because you could find a covering in the synagogue. In other words, you could act like you were Jewish, not confess Jesus publicly, and you would somehow find a covering and be exempt 
perhaps from uh, Roman persecution. This great city of Sardis was pretty overconfident because of their location and this natural citadel, and they were invaded twice in their history. Um, and here's what happened. Oh, let's, I, I don't want to take you to the music, so let me see if I can fix that. Maybe you can help me out back there and get me back to that uh, second picture. Thank you. Anyway, um, in about 550 B.C., what happened is Cyrus, uh, the Persian king, invaded this area. And he wanted to take it down, but there was no way to get there. And so, you know, you, you came to the foot of this mountain and you, you were faced with this incredible uh, Acropolis. And so what did you do? So... The story goes, and it's told by Herodotus, one of the Greek um, historians, that, you know, Croesus or Croesus thought he was fine, so he went to bed one night, even though the Persian army was at the base of the mountain. And they would only guard the one approach uh, to the city because that's all they felt that they had to guard. But there was a, one of the, um, the men that, were, that was guarding the wall apparently dropped his helmet over the side of the hill he looked around, didn't think anybody was looking. He made his way down, picked up his helmet, and climbed back up the wall. Well, there happened to be a soldier from the Persian army that was watching. And he went, aha, there is a way up there. He went and told the Persian king. The Persian king thought it was a good idea. And one by one, the Persian army began to scale their way up this wall. They found a way to do it. And they, the city was not really paying much attention and one by one, the soldiers went up and the city was sacked because they thought that they couldn't be defeated. And so they left an area of the city unguarded. Here's what we are finding with the seven churches, folks. Every time you see some descriptions of the city and the way of the city life, often and almost always, there is a mirroring between what's going on in the city and what's going on in the church. And here's what was happening in the church at Sardis. They were not really guarding the gates of their lives. The enemy was coming in. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking what? Someone to devour. And so the church at Sardis had been overrun by the enemy army. Not a physical army, but a spiritual one. And much of the church had died because they had left their lives unguarded. Now, I think you can see the application tonight. When we assume that we're going to be okay, when we leave areas of our lives exposed, when we think, oh, the devil can never get an entree here. It's unscalable. It's, it's a perpendicular wall. He can't get up this 1,500 feet. Uh, I'm cool. I'll just guard this area of my life. What we find is the enemy can find a way. When we just put on one piece of the armor instead of the whole armor of God, right? When we don't think that we need, you know, maybe to go to church as often or pray as often or guard our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Well, they felt so secure that those who were in Sardis paid the ultimate price. Well, history tends to repeat itself, and it did, during the reign of Antiochus the Great, about 195 B.C., uh, more than three and a half centuries later, after the Persians sacked the city, Sardis was rebuilt. 
But by utilizing the services of a sure-footed mountain climber, his name was Lagoris, he found a place that was altogether unguarded because of the extreme precipice near it. His army entered the city by another route while the defenders in careless confidence were content. They didn't guard this place. And this happened again under the reign of Antiochus the Great. And the city was taken again because they left the gates unguarded. They assumed that they were not going to be gotten to, but they were. And this is the problem that we have in our life. We often leave areas of our lives exposed. We leave areas of our lives unguarded. And the enemy can get a foothold. He can get a foothold in an area of our life where we may have unforgiveness in our hearts. An area where we have left resentment and anger undealt with. And all of a sudden we leave something exposed, something vulnerable, and the enemy finds his way in. And so we, we really, folks, have to learn the lessons that uh, God has for us tonight in Sardis. Um, my notes went away for a second, so let's read verse 2. Notice it says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now, each time a church is addressed, Sardis is addressed in verse 1. You could say, Thus says the Lord to the church at Sardis. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now, the seven spirits of God, we've, we've looked at that in the past, and we know that the seven spirits of God may refer to the Holy Spirit himself in all of his fullness. There's passages in the Gospel of John, for example, that Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away, for I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus said, I will send you another helper or comforter, and it is going to be the Holy Spirit, right? And Jesus sent the Spirit to the disciples, and the Spirit would be with them forever. When you become a Christian, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. In fact, the Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to you, guaranteeing your future redemption. We know that we belong to Christ because of the spirit that he has given to us. John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the spirit. And the spirit gives us power. So the seven spirits of God probably here are reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the spirit. The seven stars, we have looked at that in chapter 1, verse 20. Notice the seven stars, 120, are the angels of the seven churches. There are some commentators that believe the angels may be uh, literal angels, but we've come to the conclusion, I think, together that we believe that those are the leaders or the bishops or the pastor of each of those churches or the leading elder. Notice he says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name or a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, as we introduce the seven letters to the seven churches, I told you that someone has once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And as you read the seven letters, you can make application, I think, to churches across all history, all time, and churches in our day. There are some churches today that are absolutely dead, but the reason that they are dead is they are filled with Christians 
or at least professing Christians that are dead. And that is the saddest state to be. In fact, you would really have to say that a Christian can't truly be dead. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now, Ephesians 2, we've been made what? We've been made alive. So who is it that could be pronounced dead at the church at Sardis? I would say professing Christians. What is a professing Christian? A professing Christian is one who makes a profession without possession of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, do you think that there are many professing Christians in America who profess Christ in name? But in terms of reality, you'd have to say, I'm not sure if that person is born again. There are people who will check medical documents and when someone asks them, hey, if you're going you're gonna to figure out what you're going to do you know, at the end of life and that kind of thing, they will check, yes, I am Christian. A lot of Americans, in fact, they, they do polls in America and the numbers that come out of Americans professing to be Christians are incredibly high numbers. But these people seem to be missing from our churches because I don't see them on most Sundays. Now, they say they're Christians in name. But the, the fact that you can say you're a Christian is one thing. The, the fact that you are a Christian, of course, is quite another. So he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name. You, you say you're a Christian, that you are alive. A Christian, by definition, is alive. But you, says Jesus, are dead. What an indictment. Can you imagine if, you know, some churches do this. They ask outside consulting agencies to come in and assess the church. And it's always a good idea to get a healthy outside perspective. I'm not sure about what's done in the modern day, but it's always good to hear from a visitor. Hey, what do you see in our church? What do you think? Can you imagine if you got a written report from one of these consultant agencies and it was a one-line sentence? Our, our uh, sum, summation on your church is, you are dead. <laughs> Close the doors. Nothing's happening there. You'd go, oh my goodness. That's, that's a sad commentary. But get this. The Lord of the church, who walks among the lampstands, walks among his people, his assessment of Sardis is it's dead. Dead. Now, when something is dead, here's the hope. God can bring life where there is death. That spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. Amen? Amen? God is the God of resurrection. So even though the assessment is that the church at Sardis is dead, there is always a chance if Jesus is around that life can come even where there is death. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Jesus said to the little girl, I go to wake my friend Lazarus, right? It had been four days. King James language, one of the sisters says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. I'm not sure. Should we do this? Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And he who was dead came forth in the grave clothes and all. And he was unbound. And Jesus, you got to love Jesus, said, Jesus said, get him something to eat. That's, that's my... That's my Lord. I love those priorities right there. <laughs> what do you say to a dead church? What does the young pastor in Oklahoma who 
put the mirror in the casket, say to a dead church. Well, there's not a whole lot of options, but here's the main option. Wake up! Get up! If you have had or do have teenagers in the house, you know exactly what this looks like. Wake! You, you feel like they're gone, man. What's going on? Nothing. A train can pass by the front yard. And they don't awaken from their slumber. Sometimes I'll hear, you know how you have those phone alarms now where you can set your little, the, the, the old alarm clock is a thing of the past. Now you just put, you know, you set like three alarms in a row just in case, and, right? So the thing goes, well, for some reason, I am the only one tuned into the frequency. Or I let the dog out in the backyard. And I have to let the dog in. I say, I make these kinds of pronouncements in the middle of the home. Does anyone else hear the dog barking? And then I look around and realize that everybody in the house has headphones on. So there you have it. Wake up. What do you say to a Christian who, for all intents and purposes, looks like they're lifeless? Wake up. I think there's uh, some translations. In fact, if you have a New King James out there, does it say be watchful or something to that effect? Um, so think about the city situation. I think there's, there's manuscript streams that could render it wake up. Some, some commentators I read this week said it's maybe better be watchful. Think about the city of Sardis and think about how the city mirrors the church. They left areas unguarded. They were not watchful and paid the price. And so the exhortation from the Lord of the church to the church at Sardis is, be watchful. Wake up. How many times did Jesus say that in his earthly ministry? He said, be watchful and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Wake up. Watch out. In the Olivet Discourse, in the end times teaching that Jesus gives, he says, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the day or the hour. Be awake. Be alert. Don't fall asleep. Wake up and strengthen. Look at verse 2. Here's the remedy for the church. Strengthen the things that remain. Well, what things may remain? Could it refer to people? Well, here it speaks of things, and it could speak of spiritual realities here, things that remain, which were about to die. There seems to be a glimmer of hope here that there's things that are about to die, but there's, there's hope. Um, you know, sometimes we can think of, in terms of relationships. Sometimes we think in terms of a company. We look at a company and the business is not going so well. And we say, man, that company looks like it's about to die. It's about to die, but it's not dead yet. There's always hope. And so Jesus says, wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, Jesus although he is God, often referred to his father as my God and your God. From the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So Jesus addresses his father in that way. And don't let that throw you off because in Hebrews 1.8, the father calls the son God. So for the son to call the father God is not an issue. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't God. And if you come to our night, Sunday night, 6.33, I'll tell you about how the Jehovah's Witnesses have this all wrong. But here Jesus addresses and says, my God. Now, what was going on in Sardis? What, what was the issue for the Christian community in Sardis that was uh, spoken of as dead by Jesus Christ? I think the issue was this. I think that for a lot of them, they did not want to confess Jesus publicly. And a lot of them may have either stayed away from the church or they were playing church because they were trying to protect themselves. Now, uh, to speak about our humanity... We all know that we're human. Uh, We don't all know what we're going to do in a pressure moment, do we? We all think that we would not deny Christ or we would do the right thing if, you know, we had pressure from a company or pressure from a friend or we were somewhere where maybe, you know, there was a lot at risk. We don't know. Maybe you've blown it before. Maybe you, you have been in a situation where you should have spoke up. How many of you have regrets in the past where, a discussion's going on in the family or the company and you knew that you should have said something and you kept quiet. Why? Because we, some of us, suffer from non rockabotis Right? We don't, sometimes we say, I don't know if I want to rock the boat. That's what I was talking about. That's, that's the Latin, non rockabotis I don't know if I want to rock the boat because have you ever been here before? I don't want to get into it with this person again. I haven't even taken the first bite of my spaghetti and meatballs. And already they're going to, you know, Christianity and politics. Oh, it could get ugly. Wait until we have at least a bite of the cheesecake and then maybe, right? We have our reasons. And the Christians in Sardis were dealing with something that was pretty serious. Because if you claim to be a Christian and somebody found out, well... You could pay the ultimate price. And Jesus says in verse 3, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. See the idea of received and heard there? Often in uh, some of the sections of Scripture where we have uh, what's called creeds of the church within the text, Paul would say, That which I received, I deliver to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he'll talk about the gospel. When Paul leads us in the idea of communion from 1 Corinthians 11, he says, that which I received, I delivered to you. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. Well, here, the idea of the language here of received and heard, it was received, it was heard, and I think this, this is gospel language here, and keep it. You've heard, you've received the gospel, you've heard it, it's been proclaimed to you, and keep it. And notice, once again, we see a church in the book of Revelation that is called upon, look at verse 3, middle of the verse, to repent. It is true that the, the seven churches, I think five of the churches are called to some sort of repentance or a remedy to their problem. It is true that Christians do need to repent. Now, not repent in the sense of the first time you receive Christ, but repent in the sense that sometimes we need to turn away from stuff, right? 
When you share the gospel with someone, you, you often describe repentance as doing a 180 on the road of life. Metanoia, Greek word, change your mind, change your heart, change your actions. Well, as Christians, oftentimes, and you may have been there recently, you know, you bow your knee to pray and you all of a sudden go through a list of things that you need to repent of. Can I get a witness? Oh, Lord, I should be doing this, but this week I failed. I should be doing this. I need to amend this. I need to change this. Look, if, if you go through that in prayer, join the club because we all do. But it's, it's a good thing because you, you make adjustments uh, along the way as a Christian. He says, repent. If therefore you will not wake up, does that sound like it's up to them? It does to me. You're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit, but I'm just going to say this to you, and I'll say this for our friends that you know believe that um, our hyper Calvinist friends that believe that God does you know basically everything. He you know you can't you can't repent and believe unless He first causes you to be born again. That's extreme Calvinism. Well, I don't believe that God repents for you, and I don't believe that God believes for you. I believe if he actually asks you to repent, he's actually asking you to turn around. And if you refuse to wake up, and even as a Christian, let's face it, sometimes God's smacked us over the head, and he said something like this, you need to wake up in this area of your life. And if we say no, and we roll over with our little blankie, no. Not going to listen to the alarm. Not going to hear that. Not going to do it. Well, then there's going to be consequences. Notice this. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. When a thief comes to a home, he is uninvited and unwelcomed. Think about it. When a thief breaks in somewhere, he is uninvited and unwelcome. And Jesus Christ is saying to the church at Sardis, if you won't repent, I'm going to show up and I know I'm uninvited and apparently I'm unwelcomed. But I'm going to come at an hour when you do not expect it. Now, some of you are thinking of this and you're thinking, man, this is, this is end times language. This is the stuff that Jesus said, I'll come at an hour when you know not. Be watchful, be vigilant. You know not the day or the hour. Well, turn over to 1 Thessalonians for a second. First and Second Thessalonians, outside of the book of Revelation in the New Testament, has some of the uh, most in-depth teaching about the day of the Lord in the end times. So First Thessalonians, look at chapter five. This comes on the heels of teaching about the rapture, which everybody agrees it's about the rapture of the church. Uh, the end of chapter four talks about we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now remember, there's no chapter breaks in the original letter, and it moves into chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epics or seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like what? A thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. But you, 
by contrast to they. The they in verse 3, I think, is unbelievers or professing Christians. The you is the true believer. You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day, the context is the day of the Lord from verse 2, should overtake you, how? Like a thief. The day of the Lord is not going to overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Keep reading. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and be sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. The the wrath of God does not belong to the church, but for obtaining what? Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, that is living or we've passed on, we may live together with him. Now, uh, if you turn to Ephesians, which is a little further back, Ephesians chapter 5, take a look at what some believe either is an Easter hymn or a baptismal hymn. Ephesians 5, look at verse uh, 8. Ephesians 5, 8 says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5, uh, 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things uh, become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, what's your Bible say? Uh, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as wise, uh, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Turn back to Revelation 3. The exhortation to wake up could be directed toward a dying church with genuine Christians in it. It could be directed towards people who are just playing church. But there's a warning here. Is the warning a warning about the second coming or is it a coming of Christ back in the first century as it applies directly to Sardis? I'd say it could mean both. It is going to have a last day's application. Here's why. Some people who have claimed to be Christians are going to face a time that's called a time of what? Great what? Tribulation. Now, whatever the timing of the rapture is, we know that the world right now is in some pretty good chaos and tribulation. The world, in many ways, is already tribulating, if I could put it that way, right? As a southern preacher might say it. The world's already tribulating. Well, here's the deal, folks. Whatever the timing of the rapture may be, whether it's pre, mid, pre-wrath, post, the, the Christian community in the world, and really in every generation, has had its share of trouble or tribulation. And there are some people who have been, uh, let's say, playing church, that when the second coming happens, 
You know, there are people who put off a true commitment to Christ and they say, well, when I think things are really going to hell in a handbasket, that's when I'll get serious with Christ. But how do you know that at that time you'll be able to get serious if you continue to harden your heart to God? How do you know that you might just perish before then or, or you might buy into the Antichrist lie if you don't have spiritual discernment, you don't have the Holy Spirit? How do you know? If you can't live for Christ now when things are relatively easy in America, come on, how are you going to live for Christ when things are very difficult? There are people who they'll leave a Bible tract on their desk at work, but they, they don't want to get saved because they will say, well, I, I want to live it up a little bit first, right? Then maybe I'll become a Christian. It's not that they're saying they don't believe in God. They're just saying, I'm going to put it off. And to put it off, obviously, is a mistake. Jesus says, you won't know what hour I'm going to come upon you. That could be Sardis having to deal directly with the Lord's discipline. It could be that when they die unexpectedly, or it could be uh, germane to the second coming as well. Look at verse 4 of Revelation 3. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not what? They've not soiled their garments. Now, one of the things that was happening in Sardis is that the wool industry was very famous there. And so when you hear of soiled garments, it, it, the Greek word here is that which pollutes, that which stains. The book of James says, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Remember, the church at Sardis is living in an area where there's so much depravity. There's the temple of Artemis. There's the imperial cult to the Roman emperor. So much temptation. And if you look at verse 4, Jesus says there are just a few people in Sardis who are not soiled. Man, this world can soil you. I mean, there is so much trash and garbage in this world. When Jesus addressed the religious Pharisees, he said, you know, you look good on the outside. You're like a whitewashed sepulcher. You wash the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, I know what you're like. You're full of dead men's bones and all manner of corruption. You're soiled on the inside. You look good on the outside. To Sardis, he says, you have a name. You, you, maybe you even have a little church building there, but there are only a few, look at verse 4, who have not been soiled. They have not soiled their garments. Wow. I mean, we, we, we look at passages in the Scripture, and the, the disciples said, Lord, how many are going to be saved? Many or few? And Jesus said, there are many chosen, but but." There are a few that seem to enter. Jesus said that the gate is narrow and the, the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that find it. Now, I do believe that many, many people are going to be there on that day because of the grace of God. But the way is narrow in this sense. Jesus is the only way. If you're in Sardis and you won't confess Jesus, then you don't have the one who saves so that's how the way is narrow. Don't think of works righteousness when we say these things. Think of the fact that Jesus is the way. And if you will confess me, Jesus says, before men, I won't confess you before my Father who's in heaven. And that seems to be the root of the issue. There are only a few who haven't sold their garments. Look at verse 4. And they will walk with me in white, 
for they are worthy. I think the few that hadn't sold their garments and the fact that they will walk in white. See the, see the, the idea of white there? When a bride wears a white wedding dress, when we see white uh, in other passages that we're going to get to in the book of Revelation, those who have washed their garments in the blood of the lamb and they, they wear white. White is a symbol of, very important, justification. See, we have all kinds of stains and blemishes. I've got my bucket loads of them as that I picked up along the way. But Jesus Christ has made me white as snow in his sight. Even though my sins be as scarlet, Isaiah 1, I think it's verse 18, I will make them white as snow. Before God, I don't have any stains or blemishes. I have the righteousness of who? Jesus Christ credited to my account by faith. I am clean before the Father, unaccusable by the devil. No charge against me will stick because when Christ, when God sees me, God the Father sees me, he sees me through the perfection of his Son and all God's people said, thank you, Lord. They will walk with me in white. Don't, don't think that this is about your, your good works. Now, your good works testify to a real faith and there's a place for that but the worthiness and the overcomers are those who exercise faith in Jesus Christ but it's about to get prickly everybody ready tighten your seatbelt a little bit here we go he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments and I says Jesus will not erase his name from the book of life. And all God's people say, what does that mean? Does God have an eraser? (laughs) Now, there are some people, and remember the book of life, you know, Jesus said, don't don't, uh, rejoice that the spirits are subject to you in my name. Rejoice in Luke 10 that your names are recorded in heaven. Oh. Those whose names were not written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire when we get to Revelation 20. Don't want that happening. Is my name in the book? Oh, oh, this is like the most important thing. Because if you ain't in the book of life, the only other thing I can think of is a book of death. One time I was talking to my sister on the phone. She said, what are you doing, Michael? And I said, I'm having a bowl of life cereal. She says, better than a bowl of death. (laughs) Amen, sister. Cinnamon life. Huh? Now, there are some scholars that believe that this is the image that somewhere up in the heavens, God has a book of life with every name of every human who's ever existed. It's all there. And Christ's death is... Sufficient. He's the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. So here's what they say. They say, but that atonement on the cross only becomes effectual or only becomes good if one receives Christ. So every name is written there, all people, all time. But if you don't receive the, the cross and the shed blood of the Lamb, here's what happens. 
That's an eraser, by the way, for those of you who are listening to the audio. And you get erased out of the book. Ouch. Scary. Is there an eraser? Well, what is, what is going on here? We see in the book of Exodus, the idea of blotting one's name out of the book of life. We I think there's a passage in Daniel, similar idea. Turn over for a second to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Take a peek at verse 7. And it was given to him, Revelation 13, 7, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth who will worship him, we're speaking now of the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from what? The foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Okay, I set out that image for you. There are some commentators and scholars who believe that's the image. I'll tell you, I, I don't believe that. Here's why. I believe that everyone who is saved or ever will be saved, their name was written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. It ain't going anywhere. No eraser. You say, well, then what is the image here, Pastor Michael, that Jesus is talking about? You'll, you'll read other scholars. Go back to Revelation 3. Look at the verse again. We'll just take a hard look at it. It's actually a promise. Jesus says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white. I told you, I think that's justification. So that's placing faith in Christ. And I will, it's actually a promise. I will not erase his name from the book of life. So someone like John MacArthur, if you read his study Bible or commentary, he will say, people have taken what is a promise and made it into a threat. And he, he believes that that is an unjust conclusion Based upon just the language itself, it's actually a promise. It's not a threat. But there's an interesting history here I want to just tell you about. And here's what it is. There were something like 18 benedictions that were prayed in the Jewish synagogue. And they had, one of them is something, it's called something like the, the Jewish, I think it's called Manim. And this is what the, the Jews in the synagogue would pray. Now, I'm not talking about Jewish Christians or those who were charitable. I'm talking about like the pharisaical types. They would go into the Jewish synagogue and they would pray something like this. May all the Nazarenes, Christians, in this city, remember the synagogue in Sardis was very big, very huge. May all those who are among the, the, the Hebrew word that I just described to you, the benim, is the heretics and the Nazarenes, that's the Christians, May they all be blotted out of your book of life. This was part of their regular prayers in the synagogue. They prayed that no Christians would be in God's book of life. A regular prayer in the synagogue. And remember I showed you pictures of the synagogue. Here's the deal, folks. And I think this is solid. I think Jesus is answering that prayer. And saying, they may pray that all the time in the synagogue, that you would be erased as a Nazarene, but your name will never be erased in my book if you confess my name and trust in me for your salvation. Are you with me? I think Revelation 3, 5, 
on solid ground is answered by that historical insight that actually what Jesus is saying is though they pray that you won't be in the book, I will not, look at the middle of verse 5, erase his name from the book of life. Not going to happen. I don't care what they pray against you. Your name is in my book forever. Praise God. And I will confess his name before my father. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father and the holy angels and the gospels. And here it's repeated. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And then finally, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear. Would you notice what the Spirit says to the churches? What was the biggest problem in Sardis? Well, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Jesus said, unless you're born again of the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. The seven spirits are mentioned early on in the address to the church at Sardis. I think we're on solid ground to say that's the Holy Spirit. And I think the main issue with the church at Sardis is that there's a bunch of people, Christian in name, who are not born again of the Holy Spirit. Are you? You say, well, how does one really know? And what does it mean to be born again? You know, I've watched the football games with the guy with the multicolored wig on holding John 3.3. Unless one is born again, he will not. And, he, and he's a little bit of a wild-eyed dude, right? You must be born again. Right? That's kind of the image we got from the 70s, maybe in the 60s. And I remember talking to people, and people would say something like this to me. I'd say, hey, uh, do you go to church anywhere? Are you a Christian? And they'd say, I'm a Christian, but but I'm not one of them born-againers. <laughs> you know what that means? That means I'm a normal Christian, not like the guy who wears the multicolored wig when the field goal goes through the uprights. I'm, I'm not that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a non-born-again Christian? Because <laughs> in essence, that's what you're saying, right? I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born-againer. One day, we had moved into our house in 1995, and the little cutout where they put the uh, real estate sign was still there and it was November so me and a young man that I was discipling at the time we we put a huge cross up where the real estate sign was right in the front yard of my house just moving in the neighborhood boom huge cross right there so little old man come walking by he's my neighbor welcome to the neighborhood and he looked up at this big cross and he went oh you're not one of them are you and I said well what exactly do you mean by one of them, sir? You're not one of them born-againers, are you? And I said, there's no other kind. Hold on, let me get my wig. <laughs> so for the next 45 minutes, I debated this little old man. He said he knew Greek and read Greek. Spit was flying in my front yard. The dog went into his doghouse. My family went inside. They said, oh, no. Here he goes again. And I said, listen, old man. No, I didn't talk to him that way. <laughs> but he kept saying, I know Greek. I know Greek. I said, well, if you know Greek, then you know the, what Jesus said in the New Testament. Now, look. Can I put it simply to you? To be born again is to start over. You see, when you come into this world, 
sadly, because of the sin of Adam, you're dead in trespasses and sins. And you don't, you don't really realize it, but all of a sudden, life goes on and you get older and you, what do you sense inside? An emptiness? We even call it a deadness. And so we start seeking it through, we want to fill it through pleasure, fame, achievements, money, relationships. You, you make your list, right? And the Bible says, no, you have to have the life of God come into you. And you can be born again to a living hope in Christ. That was the problem. See, what the Lord is saying is hear the voice of the Spirit. The Spirit came to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to lead us to Christ. And he often knocks at the door of people's hearts. You need me. I don't know if you can think back to the time when you became a Christian and you think about circumstances and people. How many of you felt like you were being surrounded by Christians everywhere? They're coming out of the woodwork, baby. The next one, you want to go to church? The next one, you want to go to church? No, I don't want to go to church. And then finally you just said yes to satisfy one of them. The Holy Spirit was pounding at your door. And Jesus says you must be born again, but... Look, we need to walk in step with the Spirit. Would you bow your heart with me? Father, as we think about these subjects and, um, you know, the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit. We think about the church at Sardis that, man, it was on life support. And Jesus, you even said it was dead. But you're the God who can bring life where there's deadness. In fact, we as Christians have experienced that very thing. We've been resurrected to life, spiritually speaking, born again, where there was deadness, there's now life. Where there was hopelessness, there's now hope. And Lord, in Sardis, there was hope. And the good news is that the, the church apparently repented because there's a famous bishop from Sardis who's an apologist in the second century who carries the torch, and the church seems to have fought through it. And thank you for that reality. Thank you for that little historical insight that the church was still alive in Sardis. And Lord, we, we can't help but think of Corona. We think of Southern California. We think of how many things can soil us in this world. How many compromises it's so easy to make. It, it can be hard to be a Christian. But Lord, as we walk in step with your spirit, as we experience resurrection power, man, we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I pray that those who are here tonight would have a fresh experience with your Holy Spirit. They'd experience the power of, of Almighty God in their lives. And with your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Christ, maybe some of this is fearful to you because you're not sure that you're a Christian. Well, why don't you make sure right now and turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He died on the cross for you. He loves you. He shed his blood. He rose from the dead. Trust in him. Say, Lord, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know you tonight. I want to, I want to know that my name's in that book of life. I, I want to have my sin forgiven. I want to walk with you. And if you're a Christian tonight, and maybe you felt a little dead, a little bit parched, a little dry, ask for a fresh touch from his Holy Spirit. Do some business with God right now. 
And Lord, for this precious congregation, may you just breathe on them, pour out your spirit, refresh them. Let times of refreshing come from your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' holy and matchless name, amen. Would you stand? Thank you.